electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks. Hi, everybody. The Dow's attempt to post its first back-to-back gains in six weeks has been disappearing as we move throughout the session today. We're down about 141 points, so we are off the lows. Uh, These declines are despite the Fed injecting hundreds of billions of dollars into the system and now offering liquidity that supports muni bonds. That's an unprecedented move. Stocks began to lose steam in particular after New York Governor Cuomo ordered non-essential businesses to keep 100 percent of their workforce at home now. As you can see here, the Dow headed now for its worst week since 2008. Let's get to Bob Bassani with more, uh, Bob, on these moves today and, and what comes on a quadruple witching day, uh, which is people to know, just means a lot of extra volume in the market. Yeah, more than normal. This is the quarterly expiration of stock and index futures and stock and index options. Four things, not as important as it used to be. The hope here, Kelly, is perhaps we'll get a little less volatility, a little less volume in the following week. That is what usually happens uh, with a quadruple, which uh, maybe it'll help calm things down a little bit. Uh, We have been battered all day up and down with uh, more than a 100-point move in the uh, S&P 500 pre-open. So that's uh, certainly a major issue still, the volatility. Uh, this uh, notice to uh, for essentially 100% to stay home from New York. Uh, I talked to a couple of firms out there about whether or not they're going to uh, close or work at home. I'm talking about trading desks, and they're still trying to figure it out. Uh, but a lot of firms are now scrambling to do exactly that. Just in terms of what's been moving, I just want to point out some of the tech uh, areas right now. Tech's been a leadership group. Healthcare has as well. You see consumer staples are weakening because the food and consumer stocks that were big leaders earlier in the week are no longer that way. Uh, banks and utilities have been lagging. Of course, we talked about utilities yesterday and the problems overall with utilities. Of course, if you have a bill where you can't uh, essentially, there's a moratorium on paying bills that could affect utilities. In terms of stability, if you're looking for stability, Microsoft's been pretty stable all week, close to $140. That's a nice sign. Caterpillar's been around $96, $95 as well. Nike's been around that territory, around $70 as well. And FedEx did note the other day small businesses are operating in China. 95% of the large manufacturers are back. They did that. Uh, when they talked about uh, what was going on with the company overall. So a, f- a few stable signs. We'll see how the quadruple which closes the day out. Guys, back to you. Bob, one quick follow-up for you, which goes to what you just said about uh, New York ordering uh, basically workforce home. As I'm reminded, as you sit there with the floor of the stock exchange, I think officially closed starting Monday, what are you hearing from all these sure. traders and different uh, market makers about volume and liquidity in the markets? Is it being affected uh, by all of this? It has to be, right? Well, if, if you think of, about it, trading desks usually operate as, as a collaborative effort. They're often in pods. You'll see them together and they talk to each other. Uh, it's easy to facilitate trading when you're standing next to somebody or you're yelling across the desk. If people have to go and work at home, and this is what a lot of firms are now starting to do. I'm talking trading firms. They're setting up home trading operations. I talked to one guy today who's going tonight with his firm to work, set up the trading operations at home. 
you instinctively think there's a little bit of sand in the cog. It's not that it can't be done. It can be done. It is being done. Uh, but it does slow the collaborative process down and the ability to trade a little bit. I think what's going to happen here is initially there'll be some problems and people will get better and better at it as time goes by. Just as you and I are, Kelly, sitting here. Who would have thought you and I would be talking to each other, you know, sitting out of our homes, essentially, right. uh, chatting back and forth. And yet the technology really does work. It's quite Remarkable. Yeah, we'll be setting up our, our little home camera later, but uh, ho- hopefully just as a backup. Uh, Bob, it's good to see you for now. I, I do appreciate it. Bob Bassani okay. on the stock moves for us. Uh, meanwhile, the 10-year Treasury yield is falling back below 1% today. Here's my question. Is that a good sign or not? Rick Santelli is keeping an eye on that and all the moves in the bond market today. Rick? The fact that it's open and trading at all is a good sign. You know, I, I can't believe there's anybody out there that thinks that when everybody is decentralized, whether we have computer trade or not, that the volumes can be anywhere near where they should be. Hey, we can't even trade fundamentals. The fundamentals haven't caught up to the dynamics of the virus. We, we don't want it. Matter of fact, you know, much of this we've seen has been liquidation. And in terms of short selling, is that patriotic? Short selling? You know, I don't want the government to get rid of it, but look, come on, let's be honest here. So it should be weaned down a bit. Okay, let's look at a two-day of twos. 31 is where it's trading. Right now at 31, if it was to close, it would be down so much. It, it would be down 14 on the day, down 18 on the week. Remember, 24 is the low intraday ever, and we're at 31. Look at a two-day of 10s. Right now, it's at 94 basis points. That means it's down 20 on the day, but it's only down two on the week. 30s, the same thing, only down a couple on the week. That's how much the yield curve has moved. CRB, commodities, you know, whether it's dollar index or commodities, if you're in the emerging markets or non-developed economies, this is big time. It's at the lowest commodity price basket level since Feb of 99. Finally, let's look at a week today to the dollar index. Uh, it's only up about 4%, and it isn't even really on the highs. And if you open the chart up, we're still hovering in the zip code of a three-year high. Dollar index needs to moderate a bit. Interest rates can moderate a bit, but we don't want them moving much below about a half a percent in the tens. That's where many traders tell me they start to get a little more nervous. Kelly, back to you. you they get nervous below half a percent, Rick? Yeah, I'd say that would be about true, considering that right now uh, the intraday all-time low on a 30-year bond is coming in right around, what, 34 basis points. So we we would like to have somewhat of a cushion there. And all these Fed facilities are awesome. I don't have a problem with any of those, especially considering the reason we need them is because we've been on the central bank risk diet since 2008. All right, Rickster, thank you very much. Rick Santelli is out in Chicago for us today. For more on whether Fed liquidity is helping to calm these markets, I'm joined by Jim Paulson. He's chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group, and John Augustine is chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. Uh, so it's, it's good to have you here, Jim. And I, I guess for starters, uh, you know, you're very good at kind of uh, looking at the action across stocks and bonds and other asset classes to try to get a fuller uh, sense of what's going on here. What are your latest thoughts on all of these moves? Well, you know, I, I think, Kelly, that today uh, uh, we're seeing a little evidence of some of the illiquidity problems are calming down a little bit. Rick just mentioned the, uh, the dollar finally rolled over after a spike. The bond yield was up to almost uh, 10 year to 1.25 percent here earlier in the week. And it's back down again. There was evidence of illiquidity there. The muni market was showing it. Swap spreads have improved. You know, so there's a number of things where you're seeing some evidence that the Fed uh, dramatic and massive actions are starting to work a little bit. I, I also think personally that I, I think the bond yield backing up 
is a little bit of a good thing um, because I think it, it suggests that the, the, the massive uh, buying of bonds by panic investors might be receding a little bit, allowing yields uh, to lift, if you will. And um, I think it's, it's, I agree with Rick, if we push that 10-year yield back below 50 base points, it's going to add to the fear, hmm. Kelly, that's already out there rather than reduce it. So I actually think that's a fairly favorable sign. So how do you think through uh, everything that's coming at us, Jim, from the central bank and from the government? Is all of this stimulus, all of this liquidity helping the market to find a bottom and ultimately the economy? Because let me tell you something. When I see Goldman Sachs saying that second quarter GDP is going to be down 24 percent annualized, you think we have a a huge challenge to meet. Hmm. Well, one thing I've thought about, Kelly, is that this is the only recession by proclamation we've ever had in our history. Usually recessions occur because of vulnerabilities in the economy that that tip. Um, And they happen more slowly where the data starts coming out bad and the stock market wonders if it's a slowdown or recession. And the bear market sort of stretches on. This one was the quickest to bear ever in our history, where it went dropped 20% quicker than any other. And I think it was because everyone knows we're we're headed to recession. It's not a debate. We, we, we did a recession here by mandate. We, we just decided to shut everything down and we're going to recess for sure. And so the market got there to recession case very quickly. And what, what my point about that is, is even if we now have a recession, I'm not sure there has to be a lot more downside in the market because it very quickly has already discounted a lot of that. Now, if it's longer than expected, that certainly would create more downside. But if we have a one or two quarter very deep contraction and then a recovery, I'm not so sure the markets don't don't already price a lot of that in. And so let me bring in uh, John on that note, which, again, this has been an unusual one because the the stop in the economy and in the stock market happened almost coincidentally, John. So what does that tell us uh, as we start to look ahead towards a recovery? Can we discount one? Can stocks price in what they think might be better news six months out or or will we just have to wait and see and take it day by day? Well, we think we'll, we'll likely have to take it day by day, and it'll be around what treatment is offered for coronavirus. In our view, we're, we're at the count stage. We're trying to have the con- containment stage. Now we're looking forward to the, the treatment stage. And to echo Jim's comments, we, we may have one or two sharp quarters downwards, but, but when markets come back with the economy – it may be as violent as when they went down. Mm-hmm. That's what we want, to, we want to make sure that our clients are participating. Explain what that could look like. Because, so, you know, typically, John, when we talk about downturns, a V-shaped recovery is great news. A V-shaped recovery here could be a huge challenge of its own, right? Yes, oh, definitely. Given the closures we're seeing hour by hour now across the country and state by state, so that will challenge the V-shape, in our view, Economically, to us, I'll go back to the treatment. Is is, we all know this is a health crisis first, economic second, but we still give better than 50-50 odds that we will come back third and fourth quarter from our economic team. Stocks will generally get ahead of that, as Jim said. We've already discounted the average recession almost at this point. Um, The the panic selling seems to be calming evident by some buying in the bond market today, some buying in gold today, and stocks being volatile. So it it is a day-by-day, Kelly, as you mentioned. We hope for a V. We probably plan for a U, but we want to make sure we're invested through that. All right. Fair enough. Guys, thanks. 
Enjoy your weekend, John Augustine, Jim Paulson, uh, at least as much as possible uh, again right now. Let's turn to Washington, where Senate Republicans are releasing their proposal for a third coronavirus relief bill. This one is expected to cost at least a trillion dollars, but the plan is already getting pushback. Kayla Tausche does have the latest for us. Kayla. Well, Kelly, those bipartisan negotiations will continue through the weekend. President Trump and the White House are going to be weighing in as well. He held a call this morning with the top Senate Democrat, Chuck Schumer, and he said they're actually not that far apart in terms of these negotiations. Uh, The White House is also identifying and looking for as many levers that it can pull to bring relief to consumers and businesses in the near term as soon as possible. To that end, you have the tax filing delayed until July 15th, and you also have payments on federal student loans paused for 60 days. As those stimulus talks continue and as the discussion over those direct payments to Americans and payroll loans for small businesses uh, reaches a fever pitch. Uh, Earlier today, President Trump said that he agreed with many of the conditions that Democrats have brought forward. that there should be some conditions. The workers are my number one concern. But the way we take care of the workers is we have to keep the companies going. I am fine with restricting buybacks. In fact, I would I would demand that there be no stock buybacks. I don't want them taking hundreds of millions of dollars and buying back their stock because that does nothing. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said earlier to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said earlier today he hopes to have a vote on this package by Monday morning. Kelly. All right, Kayla, thank you. So how quickly should we expect these stimulus bills to be passed and what major political hurdles still remain? Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Dan Clifton. He is head of policy research at Strategus. All right, Dan, what's your base case here? Uh, How many trillions ultimately are we talking about and how quickly both for the bill to get passed and for this money to make its way into the economy? Yeah, both are great questions. So one, we're starting at about 1.2, 1.3 trillion the package is probably going to have to get larger for it to be able to pass. Senator Schumer uh, called this plan inadequate today because he wants to add more money for health care workers, probably more money for unemployment insurance. And so gradually this package uh, has to get bigger. But, Kelly, I know that there's a lot of hurdles. There's, some, there's going to be disagreements. The legislative process is never a pretty sight to watch. But what they're doing in this legislation is absolutely critical. The U.S. government is going to backstop small business payrolls from having to lay off workers, where we will, we as taxpayers will be paying to make sure that those payrolls uh, don't get shedded, people keep their jobs uh, during the temporary nature of the coronavirus. And second, they're dropping about $500 billion out of a helicopter into the household sector. That almost begins to gap these 10, 15 percent declines in 2Q GDP that we're seeing. There may be a uh, timing difference of when, when, those, when that spending actually comes into effect, but you are really seeing a plan designed very well to deal with the demand shock that we are about to face. And so I expect them to fight over partisan priorities. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uneasiness on both sides about voting for some of these provisions. But we could start seeing votes on this early next week in the Senate, and then we're going to have to start working with the House. So this time next week, uh, we'll have much more clarity on the size, the details, and, and when the president's going to sign it into law. Do you think it could be passed by next week or, or shortly thereafter? I do. I think that there's a recognition amongst all parties how vital this is. Nobody wants to see uh, unemployment surge higher. 
and the quicker we pass this legislation, the sooner we could stop the bleeding of unemployment. Next Thursday, we're going to get a very big unemployment insurance uh, claims number. We all know it's going to be big, and if we don't have it passed by Thursday, we'll have it passed shortly after Thursday. So I think we're moving fast. It's never fast enough. Uh, there are many disagreements that we need to overcome, and there's going to be uh, uh, ebbs and flows here. But I think uh, over the next week, we're going to have a lot more clarity on this bill. As you've said, the most controversial aspect would be the government taking direct stake in companies. Uh, how likely is that outcome at this point? And kind of there's that uh, issue of controversy on the one hand. On the other hand, there are the strings that may be attached to any of these funds as they make their way through the economy in order so that if people are upset about buybacks or what have you, as we just yep. heard the president say, yep. uh, they could prevent something like that from happening in the future. What do you expect on that front? Yep. There is very little a very little appetite to give direct aid to companies like we did in the 2008 financial crisis. So if a company needs liquidity, they can get a collateralized loan as part of this, and there's going to be conditions attached to it. It could be no buybacks while you're accepting that aid. Uh, buybacks are under attack, and they're probably going to be one of the biggest casualties that come out of the coronavirus. Uh, but the next step is whether the government could take a stake in a company, and that's something that you're seeing around Boeing and some other companies which may need additional aid that just is not about liquidity, but direct aid. And since Congress doesn't want to give out a grant, uh, the government may have to take out a preferred share or warrant, uh, something to that effect. But why would we do that? There's 2.5 million employees in the Boeing uh, supply chain. And if Boeing starts to suffer, then you'll see those layoffs happen and unemployment will go up dramatically. So there is a, a well-designed plan to backstop this to prevent unemployment from surging. And it's being done without direct grants uh, to companies to avoid any backlash. And what's interesting about this bill is how much more aid there is for small businesses rather than large businesses, which is a very different tact than we took in 2000. Yeah, and I don't think that's well understood yet, but uh, we'll have time over the weekend to, to get up to speed. And, and again, to your point, also by taking stakes in these companies, given the kind of meteoric nature of this thing, hopefully when it passes, that gives the taxpayer a chance to recover those funds on the upside and help pay for some of these programs in the first place. Um, but again, those those details are still uh, to be worked out That's to right. somewhat. The, the government is becoming a distressed investor here. And yeah. They have the longest time frame. So benefiting from the upside as a taxpayer would be very, very welcome. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Given uh, given what we're talking about. OK, Dan, thanks very much. We really appreciate it today. Dan Clifton is with Strategus. As we've been reporting, uh, sales of certain products like sanitizers and toilet paper have been soaring and leading to shortages throughout this crisis. Nielsen is out with some data just a few moments ago. Frank Holland has the latest on that for us. Frank? Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. Sales of hand sanitizer, that jumped 208 percent last week compared to the same week in 2019, according to those just released numbers from Nielsen. It's actually a decline from the previous week where those sales increased by 470 percent. For the month, sales of the highly sought-after liquid increasing by 266 percent. Nielsen adding some commentary here, saying that many consumers are also making the shift to soap and water. Toilet paper sales, those spiking 213 percent. Aerosol disinfectant sales growing more than 500 percent last week. Thermometer sales growing by 500 percent as elevated temperature is seen as one symptom of coronavirus. And as people stock up, shelf-stable food sales also rising. Sales of dried beans growing 231 percent last week. Sales of meat alternatives 280 percent higher. Also, oat milk sales 477 percent higher, much higher than cow's milk. Back over to you. Okay, Frank, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Frank Holland. Uh, we just got some news on the Fed. Uh, Steve Leisman is joining us now uh, with that. Steve, what now? What now? 
Uh, the Federal Reserve announcing now that it will do $1 trillion of repo every day for the rest of the month. It, it's hard to put this in context of the idea that the Fed used to do tens of billions or maybe even at the outside hundreds of billions, but now it will do two overnight repo operations of $500 billion each, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. It's been doing that this week. It's a sign of tremendous distress in the credit markets and the Fed's attempt to provide overnight liquidity to liquefy vast parts of the credit markets that are now frozen as a result of this coronavirus. It is the third extraordinary announcement from the Federal Reserve today. It took action earlier today to expand its money market liquidity fund to include municipal bonds of a short-term duration, first time the Fed's ever done that. It took action earlier this morning, coordinated global action with global central banks to expand the availability of dollar funding around the world so that banks and other investors around the world don't have to come to the U.S. markets for dollar funding. They ostensibly can get it overseas. Final item, Kelly, I'm hearing a lot of distress in the mortgage market. It is trading wide to treasuries. It's causing some distress sales. Barclays out with a note saying they're afraid of some kind of accident happening in the market, particularly with a leverage fund with the focus being on mortgage REITs um, and a call for the New York Fed to get involved much more heavily in the market by specifically going in and buying buying mortgages or agency-backed mortgages and not doing so in planned auctions, which it's doing today. As I think you reported earlier today, uh, Kelly, the Fed already planning to purchase $107 billion of securities today for one of the largest days, or not the largest day ever, and definitely the biggest week of purchases ever by the Federal Reserve. No, it's crazy, Steve. I mean, the numbers that we thought during the financial crisis were huge intervention by the Fed. Now we're doing in a week what we were practically doing in a month then. But I want to pick up on what you uh, you said very quickly there, because I've heard the same thing about the mortgage market. And it's fascinating at a time when rates have plunged, then the Fed's already talking about buying mortgage securities, that that mortgage rate is not going down because of a lot of, of how would you characterize these problems in the mortgage market? Right. It has to do with leverage among those who hold the mortgages. They were playing a spread between treasuries and mortgages. They were levered up and now they have to un- unwind, especially because of the volatility out there. Kelly, it's hard to underscore the importance of this for the Federal Reserve. And I'll tell you why, because mortgages and housing is a primary route by which the Federal Reserve attempts or hopes to affect its monetary policy of helping the economy. If mortgage rates do not decline, it cannot have that effect through that way. Not to mention the kind of uh, difficulty that happens through the credit strain and the effect it has on all different markets. Why these markets are blowing up, there are many, many reasons for it. Uh, But one of them has to do with leverage in the market and the problems with the mortgage market right now. The Fed is trying to throw, I think, everything it can at the issue and doing so with a speed we've never seen before, in part because it's able to take programs from the prior crisis off the shelf and expand them. Uh, The trouble is it hasn't gotten to the place yet where it can then say we have had some positive effect in really calming down these markets every day that looks like there's a new problem, a new stress. And today that focus looks to be uh, either on the muni market, which the Fed addressed, and or on the mortgage market, which it needs to do more of. Yeah. And again, as most of viewers already know, but, you know, doing a trillion dollars of repo does not mean the Fed is spending a trillion dollars or just providing that liquidity. Right. So either way, it's a huge number. Right. Thank you very, very much uh, for this latest news. Steve Leesman keeping up with these breathless announcements by the Fed. Meantime, if you think the Dow has been bad lately, check out the Russell 2000. It's been worse down nearly 40 percent since it peaked in January. My next guest says there may be some bright spots ahead. I'm joined on the CNBC Newsline by Stephen DeSanctis. He's a small and medium cap strategist at Jefferies. 
I mean, Stephen, tough times, really, really tough times. What is the problem for the small caps in particular? Is it is it energy? I mean, we usually think about them as being oh, more financially exposed. I mean, is it everything? I think, uh, Kelly, you kind of hit it on the head. It's sort of everything. First of all, small cap was really the canary in the coal mine, given the fact that small cap uh, performance peaked on January 16th when the market really peaked in February, and then we'd seen a big down, you know, downdraft after that. And I, I think for small cap, right, it's economically sensitive. So when the economy is going into recession, really tough place to be. You hit it on the head with energy. Also, 25% of small cap profits are banks or financials with interest rates so low, very hard to make money there. So earnings growth has been a lot weaker. Consumer's another big slug. Obviously, we've got plenty of problems there with consumer. Unfortunately, the list goes on and on. I think the other thing was that coming into this big you know, downturn, small cap companies had a lot of leverage. They had increased their leverage ratios. They do have a lot of cash, but obviously that freaks out people when you look at you know, just how much leverage they have. And so that's caused a, you know, a lot of the problems here. Right. And you guys have gone through to really focus on those with clean balance sheets, meaning uh, less than 35 percent debt to equity and reduce their debt year on year. And some of those names uh, that the team came up with include Sienna, Borg Warner, uh, Decker's Outdoor. Uh, what are some of the other areas? I know healthcare is one of them where you think people can invest. Yeah. So, I mean, healthcare. We just upgraded. I mean, it's hard to upgrade when it's a maelstrom, but the way we think about it, right, healthcare is going to be the solution. Some of these smaller biotech pharma companies are going to be the solution to these problems. And so with that, you know, I think they're going to get, even if they may not profit from it, they're going to get definitely premium multiples. In addition, there's going to be more M&A in um, healthcare. Last year was a record year. I think when the dust settles, there will be a lot more M&A, definitely down market cap, definitely in healthcare in particular. Healthcare also had the cleanest balance sheets coming into this year. Not that that necessarily matters for healthcare companies, but they were the cleanest. So I think they're going to take advantage of that. Okay. And uh, you still would avoid uh, consumer discretionary. So I would assume that's just because we can't yet know when this economy is going to be back up and running. Well, the big problem is that, you know, I said that leverage went up in small cap and went up even more in the consumer discretionary space over the last 12 months. Unfortunately, they were levering up as the economy just starts to unroll and to unwind itself. And so that's a big problem. And I think you're right. I mean, we don't know what earnings are going to be for many of these companies. I do realize that we're going to get this government bill and we're going to bail out a lot of these small businesses and some of these smaller companies will benefit and they'll still be in business. But the one thing that I remind people is that, you know, we bailed out the banks in 2009 and financials and small cap was by far the worst performing sector that year. Hmm. So it takes some time. It really does take an awful lot of time. And obviously, you know, Steve Leesman's done a great job on the reporting side. And I think the thing that we need to see stability on and, and obviously everything that Treasury and the Fed's doing, that, that's really helping. That's going to help a lot. Yeah. And uh, that's the hope in, the long, in a little bit longer run. Stephen, thanks so much for your time Thank and you, for some Kelly. analysis of what's going on with small caps in particular. Really tough part of this market. Stephen DeSanctis of Jefferies. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now, who brings us the very latest numbers on the coronavirus. And indeed, I have them for you, Kelly. Here are those latest numbers, everybody. Total confirmed cases worldwide have now topped 250,000. And there are more than 10,000 deaths, according to the Johns Hopkins count. 
Tax day has been moved by two months. The deadline to file your 2019 taxes has been moved from April 15th to July 15th. You can also wait until then to pay any amount due without interest or penalties. J.P. Morgan is giving what it calls frontline employees a $1,000 bonus. Anyone still working in a branch or office to maintain essential services is eligible. And for would-be home exercisers, Peloton is suspending the sale and delivery of its Internet-connected treadmill because it requires in-home assembly by a company representative. Peloton will, however, still deliver a fully assembled stationary bike to your doorstep. To your doorstep is the key there. You might need to get some strength training if you need to get it up inside or up a flight of stairs. You are up to date, Cal. You can get continuous updates on the coronavirus at CNBC.com. We do the air bike at home. People can Google it. There you go. Talking about. It's not quite as heavy. I can even almost move it around. Sue, thanks very much, Sue Herrera. Let's check in on shares of Boeing, which are slightly higher now by just about one and a half percent as the company seeks federal assistance. And not everyone believes that's a good idea. And that now includes one of its former board members. Phil Abode does have that story for us. Phil. Kelly, we're talking about Nikki Haley. She joined the Boeing board last year. And as this company has moved forward over the last month, two months, with the idea that perhaps it needs a government bailout, Nikki Haley has decided, you know what? I don't want to be a part of a company that is going to be seeking government aid. So she has resigned effective immediately. And the letter, her resignation letter, she doesn't mince meat in terms of what uh, she says. She says, I cannot support a move to lean on the federal government for a stimulus or bailout that prioritizes our company over others. Boeing. Well, it was higher earlier in the session, but now it's trading back under $100 a share. And there you see what's happened over the last month, not only for Boeing, but for the other airline stocks as well. They are also seeking a government bailout. The interesting thing here, Kelly, is whether or not one of the conditions is the federal government may take a stake in either the airlines or in Boeing or in any company that gets federal aid. That is all, as we've been talking about, getting hashed out on Capitol Hill right now. But, Phil, would you say overall the, the sense from your reporting is that this bailout is more or less likely than it looked, say, three to five days ago? I would say the people who are talking with the folks on Capitol Hill are more optimistic that it will happen. But the question is, with what conditions? That's, that's the wild card in all of this. And when you talk with airline executives, when you talk with executives at Boeing, they're not even sure what those conditions are going to be. And listen, we were just listening to the president talk. You know, he said, well, I don't want stock buybacks. Uh, I think that that should be one of the conditions. Will it be one of the conditions that there are not stock buybacks? Will there be a cap on CEO pay? Will the government be allowed to take a stake? All of that is being uh, discussed right now. Hopefully we get some answers on that within the next you know, week or so. Sure, especially uh, for investors and for the whole market with this uncertain time. Boeing shares back under 100 bucks, around 99. Phil, we appreciate it. Phil Abo in Chicago. For more on Boeing, I'm joined by Carter Copeland, who's a founding partner at Melius Research and author of Lessons of the Titans. Richard Abulafia is also here. He's vice president of analysis at the Teal Group. Uh, Richard, I'll start with you because do you think this is bailout the right word? I mean, for the other companies involved, the other industries, I'd say, look, it's a it's a cash infusion. It's a lifeline, basically. But for Boeing, which had the 737 MAX disaster, does this amount to a bailout? And if so, should it go forward? I really don't wouldn't describe it as a bailout. I mean, the truth is that they could simply respond to market realities and say, OK, nobody wants jets right now. Let's stop all orders to suppliers. Let's lay off a lot of people. Let's have our suppliers lay off a lot of people. It'll make life difficult, but we could stave off bankruptcy, and that would be fine. It would be a disaster for the economy. 
uh, that's really what's at issue here. I suspect the overwhelming majority of the sum that's being talked about would filter down to the supply chain that makes the majority of a Boeing jet and to their workers. So really, we're not talking about something that bails out Boeing. We're talking about something that keeps aircraft production going at all levels of the supply chain through the hopefully just a couple of months where the demand side of the aviation industry has simply ceased to function because nobody can fly. How do you do that in a way, Richard, which which is punitive enough or, or somehow separates the company's operational challenges, which it's still working through related to the 737 MAX from, you know, keeping the, you know, the nation's uh, plane maker going? You know, how do you separate those two or, or impose the kind of conditions that would effectively achieve that? Yeah, exactly right. You know, as Philip O said a moment ago, there are a lot of questions about the mechanism here. But the good news is there's plenty of precedent and plenty of promise. You know, first of all, absolutely no buybacks, ending dividends. I think all good people involved in this can say, yes, this money should not be used as a, a conduit to shareholders. Executive comp caps on the table. I would rather hope that long-term operational decisions, such as uh, sourcing over next-generation jets, weren't on the table, but, you know, ultimately anything can be. But most of all, the level of disbursement, who should be in charge of making sure the cash filters down or trickles down, if you will, to Boeing suppliers rather than staying at Boeing. Maybe that should be a government function. And of course, what does the government get? Is there the possibility that, you know, as with uh, as with GM a few years ago, not that there's a whole lot of comparisons, but in that situation, the government came out ahead at the end of the day. And I think given what's happened to Boeing's share price, maybe there is the prospect of the government taking warrants, stake, right. something. No, I agree. In which case, ironically, it'd be in the best case of the taxpayer to allow dividends or buybacks if they are an investor. They don't have to be, they have a different kind of preferred. Anyway, as you can see, it gets very complicated quickly. Let me bring in Carter on that note. Uh, Carter, how dire is the situation for Boeing? When are they going to run out of cash? Well, look, the, the, the company has quite a bit of liquidity at present, right? So they've got... Probably twenty. If you tap the revolver, probably twenty billion dollars of cash that they can access today. But as Richard correctly points out, there is an immense amount of money that goes to the supply chain. Uh, if you try to guess what that would be, of course, of a year, the U.S. base space supply chain probably takes in about thirty billion dollars. So the way the system works is the airlines pay Boeing, Boeing pays the suppliers, and suddenly, if the airlines can't pay, then you come into what is. Uh, a textbook liquidity crunch. And so I think what we're talking about here is, is, is a liquidity crisis, not an insolvency crisis, but it's one that is not just uh, Boeing's crisis. I mean, you can see today, you know, the French government is moving to, you know, to support Airbus uh, as well. And that, you know, so this is an industry crisis. It's not isolated just to Boeing. Uh, this is about, you know, right, but Carter, the, how bad was it getting for Boeing because of the 737 MAX problems? I mean, this plane has been down for over a year. There's it's still not anywhere close to back in the skies it was a major kind of next generation profit center for them. So that's what I'm talking about. In, in the other cases, you can say, look, this this, you know, sudden stop in the economy came out of nowhere and these companies can't be blamed. But in Boeing's case, it was dealing with a self-inflicted crisis already. I, I think, that, look, that's correct, but the amount of money we're talking about for the max pales in comparison to the amounts that we're talking about. So Boeing's sitting on $10 billion worth of fully constructed jets that are sitting in the parking lot, and for every month that they don't run uh, the 737 MAX factory, they, you know, they eat 
the better part of a half a billion dollars. When we're talking about $60 billion industry bailouts, it's about something much, much bigger than the 737 MAX. And again, you know, if you look to Airbus and, and say, well, why do they need government support? They don't even have a 737 MAX. So I think as Richard points out, this is about hoping that the supply chain can stay healthy such mm-hmm. that when this crisis is over, they can function. Because just three months ago, the, the industry you know, was underproducing airplanes for global demand. Right. And so the, the, the implicit bet here is that when this goes away, they'll need to go back up. And to go back up, you don't want to lay off a couple hundred thousand people. Absolutely. You need that industry. Okay, guys, thanks today. Carter Copeland and Richard Abulafia, we appreciate it. Up next, we're going to talk about the staggering number of layoffs that are already about to swamp state unemployment offices across the country. The jobless claims next week is going to be record-breaking in a very bad way. Hundreds of thousands of those looking for work could be in luck, however, with Kate Rogers looking at the big companies like Walmart, who are set to go on a hiring spree. We'll tell you all about that. Dow's uh, down 226 points right now. We're back with more breaking news coverage of these markets in turmoil. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Unemployment filings are surging coast to coast, but there are businesses looking for help right now. Rahel Solomon is on the spike in unemployment for us, while Kate Rogers has a look at who's hiring now. Rahel, let's start with you in this 33 percent spike in federal claims filings. Yeah. So, Kelly, two sobering predictions as well. Both Bank of America and Goldman Sachs forecasting that jobless claims could actually hit two to three million for this week. That would be the largest spike for initial jobless claims ever and the highest on record. Reporting from The New York Times indicates that the Trump administration may be so concerned about this spike in claims that they're asking local labor offices to withhold exact numbers until national numbers are released on Thursday. One state official confirming to me that, yes, they were asked to report generalities instead of precise figures. Now, all week we have been speaking with labor offices across the country, and the story is largely the same. The number of people either calling about unemployment benefits or filing claims is soaring, even jumping triple digits in some states. Officials in New York say that they are seeing a 400 percent increase in logins per day and a 1000 percent increase in claims in certain areas. And Washington, one of the first states to report COVID-19 cases, officials there say that on Tuesday of this week, they saw calls increase 827 percent compared to last week. And by Wednesday of this week, Louisiana officials fielded more than 28,000 new unemployment claims. The total for all of last week was about 1,800. And Kelly, again, the concern is that what we're seeing this week will continue, if not get worse, for weeks to come and perhaps even longer. Rahel, I also wonder, because a lot of these offices are pretty old school and we have employees themselves who may be facing work, uh, you know, shutdowns because of coronavirus, you know, obviously not 100 percent. But how are they dealing with this surge at a time when they themselves might need to take precautions? So we're hearing different things from different offices in New York. For example, they're telling me that they have 700 dedicated staff members just to address this increase in calls. They tell me that they have extended their hours. 
Louisiana, they tell me that, yes, they're also seeing unprecedented levels, but that they've been through natural disasters before. They've been through Hurricane Katrina, that, that they will get through this. And others telling me that they are encouraging people to try online first. But that's not always helpful. We know that here in the state of New Jersey, at times, that site has been crashing, according to Governor Phil Murphy. So, Kelly, one thing I can say is that when I talk to these offices, there certainly does appear to be some sympathy. I think everyone is just sort of trying to get through this as best as they can, but sort of telling people different things, whether it's to apply online or to try again or that to to maybe call an off-peak hours. I've also heard that. Yeah, good ideas. Okay, Rahel, thanks very much. Let's turn to some better news on the jobs front, which is that there are companies actually hiring quite a bit right now. Kate Rogers has those details for us. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kelly. Well, kicking off with Walmart announcing it's looking to hire 150,000 new workers for its distribution and fulfillment centers and in stores. Now, these are temporary, lasting until May, but the company says some may become permanent. Amazon also looking for workers. Earlier this week, the e-commerce giant announced 100,000 new roles for their fulfillment centers, transportation operations, stores, or those making deliveries. The company is also trying to keep its current staff happy, offering an extra $2 per hour for all hours worked through April. The pizza chains, too, we know, staffing up big. Domino's looking to bring on 10,000 new workers in all positions. Papa John's also looking for 10,000 delivery drivers ASAP. Grocers like Kroger and Albertsons and even Blue Apron are also seeking additional staff. Several of these companies promising to speed up the hiring procedures to quickly meet the demand. Walmart says their two-week hiring process has been reduced to just 24 hours. Papa John says in some stores, applicants can apply, interview, and even start Kelly on the very same day. Hopefully with temperature checks. Uh, Kate, thanks very much. That's the truth, right? No, at least there is a, there are a couple of places expanding, and that could help take this thing out of this. Kate, we appreciate it. Kate Rogers. Well, many are looking at data from China and Italy to help us predict how our epidemic will play out. RBC just updated its coronavirus model based on the newest case numbers, and Meg Terrell joins us now to see what they found. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, we showed you those graphs yesterday with RBC's modeling in the U.S. based on the numbers that they saw in China and Italy creating kind of an algorithm for what they expected could happen here in the U.S. And with case numbers here rising so quickly now to more than 15,000 and what RBC and others are saying, uh, they're seeing in an uptick in hospitalizations due to influenza-like illness in places like New York City, suggesting that there could be an exponential growth in severe COVID-19 cases requiring hospitalization. They have now updated this chart and we'll show it to you here. Uh, Now, the base case scenario has become that, and this is the orange line you should be looking at. Uh, The dotted line was where we were yesterday and the day before. The orange line, solid line, is where we are now. They are now seeing, because of the surge in cases, that we could see ICU capacity in the U.S. start to get stressed even earlier as soon as next week, Kelly. Um, Now, of course, they're saying the numbers rising is due to the increased testing numbers, But what they're seeing in those hospitalizations uh, for influenza-like illness that's not due to flu, um, that is what's really concerning people about our hospital's capacity right now, Kelly. So in other words, not only is the coronavirus curve worse than we thought, and we can show that graphic again, but people are showing up for other flu-like problems that is straining the capacity that these hospitals have? Sorry, to explain that better, what they're doing with the flu data uh, is looking at people hospitalized for what's called influenza-like illness. Uh, But it's likely not 
flu that's causing it. So they are uh, deriving from that data the conclusion that it might be COVID-19. And we're just not seeing that picked up by the tests officially yet. So it's uh, starting to cause quite a lot of alarm that our hospitals are getting overwhelmed. But we're showing, so we were on the dotted line, the flatter line, and now we're on the, we're, we're trying to flatten the curve, Meg. It is steepening. This is, this is not, this is not good news. Not the right direction, but uh, what the analysts are saying is that what we're seeing in California and New York are steps in the right direction. And it may be a delay, of course, until we see that bear out in the direction of the curve, especially as our testing capacity increases. The numbers are going to go up, but things might be getting better, Kelly. Okay, Meg, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell uh, with those projections for us. Now, several lawmakers are under fire for selling major holdings at the beginning of this stock market sell-off, well ahead of the drastic escalations in this pandemic. While still reassuring citizens that the U.S. was prepared, Kayla Tausche joins me now with Senator Kelly Leffler. Kayla, kick things off for us. Thank you so much, Kelly, and thank you to Senator Leffler for joining us today. Uh, I'll jump right in. Federal records show up to $3 million in stock sales in the weeks after a private coronavirus briefing. Both you and your husband, who runs the New York Stock Exchange, have said these were conducted by third-party advisors without your involvement. But who were these advisors and what regular communication do you have with them? Well, Kayla, thank you for having me on. I want to tell you that the third-party advisors are the same ones that many Americans rely on for their investment advice. I have no involvement in these decisions. I don't have conversations with them about any of this. And so this is a very third-party relationship that many people are familiar with. Were these part of pre-planned scheduled stock sales, or were these individual investment decisions that were made by these advisors, given what was facing each of these 29 companies where you or your husband transacted in recent weeks? These were completely uh, discretionary trades at the decision of our investment managers. We had no involvement in, in them. And in fact, I don't find out about these trades until these reports are compiled at the end of the reporting period. So I had no knowledge of these companies. And in fact, it was a mix of buys and sells. And so um, I just want to set the record straight there that certainly I had no involvement and, um, and you know, will continue to have no involvement in these investment decisions. And I should note that I have 20 years well, of investment experience where I'm accustomed to managing through sensitive information. And I have always adhered to the letter and the spirit of the law, and I'll continue to do that. You have a background in corporate America, Senator Leffler, but you are the newest member of U.S. Congress. You are among the wealthiest members, and you're running for election this year. Why not hold off on these sales? These are sales that I don't have discretion over. Our portfolios have been turned over to third-party investment managers that are making these decisions. They represent a very small fraction of of the uh, portfolio, and that's going to be normal course uh, trading that you would have seen if you looked back to the portfolio a year ago. I mean, there's no um, pattern that we can mandate or dictate within these buys and sells, and, um, and so I would not have had discretion over those decisions. Senator Loeffler, it's Kelly here back in studio. So just to clarify for the public, is it a coincidence that these holdings were sold on the same day that you had this briefing about the severity of coronavirus? Well, I think that's an inaccurate characterization. Uh, This uh, report reflects a period of time. And in fact, the only uh, 
activity that I had individually was a purchase uh, at the end of January. And so I think it's really important to set the facts straight here that um, there was not an outright sale. And in fact, if you look at many of the individual trades, they were quite bullish. Were you privately more concerned about coronavirus following that briefing than you had publicly indicated by saying to people, look, even if it's a little bit worse than the flu, you're going to be fine? No, I think all of us uh, back in January, I think we were all very aware that there was an outbreak, but that we had very competent health officials, that the president was taking this very seriously, that the travel ban was important. Uh, I don't think it was until, you know, a month, you know, at the start of this month when we started to realize the severity of it. And I think uh, that certainly should not um, uh, be different than what, what other Americans have seen with the progression of this disease. Can you understand why this looks so bad to the public and that and and allow that maybe we need to have more safeguards, more firewalls, more sales, maybe outright sales, especially for a family as well positioned as yours, so that these conflicts of interest, seemingly or otherwise, don't come up? And if it's in the case of your that other senators directed sales uh, and these were not done by managers, then what should the punishment uh, for those actions be? Well, I can only speak for myself in saying that I've been very, very careful throughout my entire career to adhere to the letter and the spirit of the law, have done so here, will continue to do. In fact, will continue to over-comply where needed. And also, I just say that, um, you know, I think as we, you can look back uh, across the activity that we've had, and um, it, it's no different from, from what we've reported in the past, um, but now it's out in the public, and um, I'm happy to answer all kinds of questions about it. That's why I'm here today and am very confident that, um, you know, we have followed the letter and the spirit of the law. Senator, you say that you weren't made aware of these transactions until February 16th. The market was near all-time highs at that time. Have you sold any stocks since then and why? I don't know. I'm not apprised until I see the reports that are filed. I don't direct the activity. I'm not involved in the investment decisions. I made that decision many years ago uh, for the, the position I had in financial services that I would not get involved in investment decisions. And so I don't direct or participate in the decisions made for any of our portfolios. How would you describe your level of access to non-public information, though, whether it's these closed-door briefings or your many visits to the CDC in your home state of Georgia? Well, I think it's, it's low. I think, uh, you know, material non-public information is something I understand innately, having worked in financial services, and um, that's not something that um, we're involved with a lot. But to the extent that we are, we obviously cannot trade on it, and I would not and am very aware of those requirements. To avoid the optics of potentially uh, the public connecting those dots between acquiring that information and making some of these transactions, do you think that Congress should be banned from dealing in individual stocks? And will you submit to an ethics review on these transactions? Well, first of all, I'm happy to answer any and all questions and would, would submit to whatever review is needed. I think, uh, you know, we have to make sure that all the rules and laws are followed. I think they are being followed, at least in, in my case. I know they are. I can't speak for other people. But that's certainly what securities law is for. That's what ethics rules are for. That's what I'm very uh, confident that we are complying with, have always complied with, and will continue to do. Senator Kelly Leffler, the freshman senator from the state of Georgia.
Kelly, we'll send it back to you. All right. We thank you both very much uh, for that interview. Breaking news on the Fed once again. Let's go back to Steve Leisman for that. Steve? Yeah, Kelly, thanks very much. Not a uh, half an hour goes by without a new act from the Fed. We were talking about problems in the mortgage market. The Fed now saying it will do an additional $15 billion of purchases of mortgage-backed securities today. That's on top of $32 billion it was already going to do. Uh, It also said next week it will purchase $100 billion of mortgage-backed securities. So the running total for the day has now changed, Kelly. What was a record $107 billion of purchase today is now 122. What was a record $307 billion of purchases this week by the Federal Reserve is now $322 billion. Back to you, Kelly. All right. I'm going to keep a tally going, Steve, the number of times we see you. I think it's a crisis indicator. When it, when it goes down, that's a good sign. Uh, but we appreciate it very much, sir. Steve Leisman. Uh, before the coronavirus took hold of the country, it looked like we were headed for an epic spring home selling season. Now that will be crushed. And the question is, what happens to home values in the meantime? Diana Olick has those details for us. Diana? Well, Kelly, February existing home sales were just huge. They jumped over 7% annually to the highest level in 13 years. But remember, those February closings were based on contracts signed up to two months before. And we already have predictions of a 35% drop in home sales this spring. Now, the bright spot may be prices. The realtor's chief economist said this morning that he does not expect to see prices fall because there's still such strong demand out there, low mortgage rates, and the housing shortage actually got even worse in February. Inventory dropped nearly 10% to barely a three-month supply. That pushed prices up 8% annually. So even if we saw a drop in spring sales, we could see those sales pushed to a very strong fall market. That is, of course, if the economy is up and running again and the economic stimulus helps to bring back consumer confidence. And just a note on what Steve said, we have seen mortgage rates jump back over 4% because there was so little MBS buying. This should help get more money into those mortgage-backed bonds and potentially lower mortgage rates again. Kelly? Diana, real quickly, are people having open houses yet or no? No. No, it's all about virtual open houses now. Everybody's saying, you know, and some real estate agents are saying that if you want them to walk through the house while they hold an iPad or something and you're on the other side and they can walk through it for you and talk to you and do it virtually that way, a lot of them are willing to do so, but not a lot of open houses this weekend. All right, Diana, we appreciate it. Diana Olick there for us. Turning now to analysts on Wall Street who might say, well, there's places where the selling is overdone. Here are today's calls for you. We have Citigroup upgrading Lululemon to a buy with a $190 price target. The firm saying that while the retailer will be impacted by store closures, they believe Lulu will fare better than most given their product offerings and that its long-term earnings power is not at risk. Uh, there you can see Lululemon up 8.5% today to about 168. Meantime, Uber getting an upgrade to overweight at Wells Fargo, although they did lower the price target to $41. The company is saying Uber is attractively priced after its recent drop, adding the value remains tied to growth trends that will play out long after coronavirus disruptions have subsided. And Uber is up nearly 5% today, trading at 21.50. And finally, J.P. Morgan upgrading Tyson and Sanderson Farms to overweight. Uh, JPM saying the two companies are seeing outstanding retail demand for their products, i.e. in the grocery stores, and that will offset the soft demand at food service and restaurants, which has taken a big toll. Uh, Tyson is up 3% today. Sanderson Farms down fractionally. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. 
From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.